Hi, welcome to episode 24 of Sparks of Madness. And this week my guest is Big D, Darren Archer, um, who is uh, a comic who I haven't ever directly worked with, but have got a, a sort of a friendly relationship with. Um, we struck up a relationship over Facebook um, through uh, one of the, the many Facebook comedy forums mentorship scheme. So Big D's a little bit ahead of me in terms of his development and progression. He's been going a little bit longer than I have. Um, and we're similar kinds of act, I suppose. Um, big, confident, loud comedians We who, who do similar styles of material. Um, so he was a natural fit to provide me just with that bit of guidance as he was already treading the path that I was heading down. Um, so it's good to speak with him about his issues. Um, and I suppose there were some similarities that I found there as well in terms of your comedy persona. Our comedy personas are very similar. Um, and so when you have mental health issues, it can sometimes be um, difficult to square that away with people who see a confident, loud uh, capable comedian and perhaps don't realize that beneath the surface there's you know all kinds of anxiety issues etc going on so it was great to speak with him i think he's a great guy and i hope you enjoy the episode if you do please comment like subscribe all of that stuff let us know you're out there and if you have any suggestions for future guests then do drop me a line take care cheers So, welcome everyone to episode 24 of Sparks Madness, and I'm speaking to Big D. How you doing, Big D? Hi, nice to see you, buddy. Nice to see you. It's absolutely brilliant to be talking to you, and uh, yeah, doing well. Yourself? Yeah, I'm good, man. I'm good. It's um, it's one of those weird times where I think we're sort of all gearing up to to things starting to come back post-COVID, but not yeah, sure when it's going to happen. there's a faint glimmer at the end of this tunnel and we might be returning. And yeah, yeah. And sometimes like, feels a bit know. worse. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, you know, it's, <laughs> I am starting to get very excited now because the, the hope, I'm getting a lot of bookings in now and I'm, yeah. there's a little bit of me thinking it can, it can happen. Mm. There's also another part of my brain telling me it can all be taken away quite quickly. Yeah. And that's the biggest worry at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm I'm trying to be pragmatic about it, which is, you know, things are going into the diary, but if they don't happen, they don't happen, and, and there's not much we can do about it. So I'm tr- I'm trying to have that attitude. But I know that when we came out briefly last year, um, sort of August September time, um, when I managed to squeeze a few gigs in, then it then felt really crap to have them taken away again because you were just kind of getting up to some kind of rhythm and and. Getting your, getting your mojo back um, yes, and then it, it sort of got yanked away but you know it's there's far more important things going on in the world than, than me talking about my knob on stage so um, <laughs> we'll see we'll see what happens but so um, just for, for um, listeners who don't know you tell us you know how long you've been going in comedy and what your kind of backstory is if you like yeah well uh, my name's Big D Archer my real name as a lot of people will know is Darren Archer I've been doing comedy now for uh, it'll be coming up to four years towards the end of this year now, and and I started um, at a local uh, local venue um, in Hereford, which is where I'm based, and it was a uh, it was a little coffee shop that me and my friends would go to quite regularly, and the the manager was always a good friend of mine who just started to tiptoe into the, uh, the comedy world. He wanted to bring comedy back to Hereford. Now, uh, Hereford is its an amazing town. It's an amazing city. It's its a place um, where we used, 20 years ago, would get some amazing acts to come down. 
We'd have like Jasper Carrots. We'd have Rick Mel and Ed Edmondson doing the bottom shows down there. We used to have a lot of comedy in Hereford. Over the years, it dissipated and it kind of left us. And we only had a few venues doing comedy every now and again. And speaking to him, the uh, the manager he would uh, the uh, the venue he wanted to get it back he wanted to ignite the passion of comedy in Hereford again and he wanted to get pubs and clubs involved and I love that side of it and he asked me you know would it be something I would ever do now I I never really thought of myself as a comedian I I have times where you know between friends you have a laugh and they say you're funny which is great but I, I, it's generally one of these things, it's a bit of a bucket list for me. Now, I, I'm quite a, a large individual. I'm not going to climb any mountains anytime soon. I'm not going to, you know, hit Everest or, you know, swim any big oceans. Mm. But <clears throat> the idea would be to, you know, would I, could I get on stage for five minutes and make strangers laugh? And I, I thought, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to set my goal to do it. I'm going to not tell any of my friends I'm doing it. I'm just going to go to back to the venue in a few months' time and do a five-minute set. And I, it was one of the best liberating things I've ever done. The feeling of electricity you get when you left that stage to people applauding you and, you know, it, it's, it's washed over you. It was an incredible feeling. Yeah. And since that day, I found a lot of support and I've been very lucky and I've, I've done well in a lot of venues and I've gone here and there and I've had good gigs, I've had bad gigs, but it's something that just keeps drawing me back. It's, a, it's definitely an addiction, I find. It's, it's, it's definitely uh, thought-provoking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, and what's the scene like now in Hereford then since that? Is, is, it, is it kicked off? Is it, I mean, are there more than just that venue doing stuff or is it just that or, or how's it going? So, let me take you back just before COVID. We had a handful of venues. We had probably three, four nights a month that had just got started. And myself, with a number of other promoters in the area, we were working together trying to bring nights. And we were just at that tipping point where we were starting to get traction. The local radio, local BBC radio would get in touch, wanting to do more work with us, trying to promote hereford itself to get it going again and we had a lot of people's belief in that it can it could happen we had a lot of venues asking and then covid hit mm. you know mm -hmm. it all went away very quickly and all kind of got forgotten about as a it's not a priority so it got uh, swept under the carpet so um, for a long time i've been in lockdown and i've been with going back to Hereford with comedy. Is it mm. worth bringing it back there? But then all of a sudden I started getting a lot of people asking me, you know, will you come do nights at this pub? Will you come do nights at this venue? So I, I put some feelers out there and people came back to me. And at the moment I've got about five or six possible venues wanting to do comedy as soon as this is lifted in the right mm -hmm. measures, obviously. Yeah. I'm working yeah. with a number of comedians in the area and we the hope is in the next week or two is to have some confirmed dates. We're looking probably two or three nights a month to begin with, which I think for a city of the size of Hereford coming out of COVID, 
would be amazing. And the support has just been incredible. It really has. Yeah. It really has. Yeah. I think what I've found is that the sort of venues that can potentially host nights going forward um, are keen to look at things like that as a way of getting, you know, coaxing people back to pubs, bars, restaurants, whatever. Um, Definitely. Right, you know, and, you know, the big guys, I think, you know, purpose-built comedy clubs have suffered, but I think that they'll also be the ones that potentially find it relatively easy just to get back up and running because they've got that kind of, that template, that format just to run with, or albeit with reduced audience numbers or what have you. But other places that maybe haven't, there might be venues and bars that have never really done live entertainment, but suddenly, you know, you can cover your, your costs of getting pro and semi-pro acts in by charging a fiver on the door or whatever. Yeah. And and then you can, and people will come because it, one thing that they've missed is live events. And, and you know, Definitely. I know friends of mine who've never been to see me do comedy, who watched it online and what have you, and never particularly fancied coming to an actual gig gig. Um, now we're like, oh, yeah, we'll definitely start supporting things like that or going to see live mm-hmm. music or whatever the entertainment is. And I think there, there is hope for it. I don't think it's a dead art and I don't think it's going to be. Um, but like anything, you have to adapt and, and, you know, we'll see how that goes. Have you done anything online during lockdown? I, 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 the start of lockdown, I did. But the worry I had was I didn't like the fact there was no audience there for response. It was... It, it felt to me like you were just um, just looking in a mirror with the hair comb in your hand. Sorry, no offence. I know you're, you're bold. Um, <laughs> it was literally it, it it had no effect. I felt very it felt very dead to me. And after a few, I just said, you know, I I'd rather hold off. I I, I was going to do pod interviews and things like that, but I generally didn't want to do comedy online. I just didn't feel right. And the worst thing about it was it was starting to make me question do i really enjoy comedy yeah. is this the, is this the future of comedy do we really want this so i i ste- i stepped back and i started writing i write i did a bit of writing for a few comedians and i felt i kept myself busy in that side so throughout lockdown i tried to keep busy might not be on on the stage or screen but i kept myself busy behind it and uh try to keep the connections going. I talk to comedians every day. I get so many people who get in touch with me wanting just to talk. And it's yeah. it's mm-hmm. quite uh, refreshing it is because it can be, it is a scary time at the moment. Yeah. And there's a lot of uncertainties. And the comedy world, uh, especially that we exist, I, I do find 99% of the people you meet, you know, they are supportive. They want to help. They want to help each other. Mm-hmm. And it's good. And I've always stated that if anyone ever wants help, I always help them, you know, as long as you do the same for others. Yeah. So, which is uh, which is actually how we came to know each other, isn't it? Because um, right. through one of the various, and I've explained this to listeners in the past, but for anyone who's new to the podcast, most most comedy outside of the very highest levels of comedy, as in the, the paid TV work and what have you, most comedy is run. The, the network is on Facebook. I don't know why that is, um, but that's how it is. So Facebook is the place um, where gigs are advertised, where comedians discuss gigs, etc. And uh, and also one of the certainly one of the forums that I joined had a advertised a sort of a, a mentor scheme um, and linked the two of us because of I think what what's probably anyone who's seen your your stuff and my stuff is that we're probably slightly similar 
style of act. I, I'm, I think our material isn't too similar, but we're, we're both big guys. We're both sort of larger than life. We're both confident, uh, you know, bra- relatively brash. We're not shy uh, performers. Yeah, no, um, and you're just, you're about a year ahead of me in terms of how long you've been going. So it was really useful for me when I was still... And we're both dead gorgeous guys. I mean, oh, absolutely. Really yeah, sexy as fuck. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, I think um, but what I found really useful was, you know, having a having set various Facebook chats with you um, mm. and and just and it was almost that sense check of you know yeah you're doing you're doing things the right way it's going well and what have you you avoided the pitfalls and all that but I think it's it's because there's no rule book there's no guideline yet people yeah. will be quick to tell you when you've cocked it up um, so it was really useful for me to have someone who I could see a bit of myself in if you pardon the expression um, no. And, uh, and and just get that sort of that that little arm around the shoulder almost. So yeah, thank you for that. No, I appreciate that. You know. um, and and I found myself, like you say, in terms of sort of the the, the pay it forward kind of thing. Um, you know, when newer acts are coming up around my way and stuff, if they ever speak to me, they they generally get what I think of as as pretty sound advice from me. And you know, and and just. Um, I think that that is something that I have found in comedy. I said that there are still a few dickheads about, but there are in an industry. I think there, are, yeah, I think there are generally fewer in ours than than a lot of others. Um, most people want to see people doing well because if everyone's doing well, then comedy's doing well. And if comedy's doing well, there's more work for everyone. So, um, well, I um, I started. Uh, I got asked to help a few comedians out uh, over towards my way um, in. Um, Hereford, Worcester, Gloucestershire way. So, and I, I quite enjoy the network inside of it. And we all mm. helping each other. They, they were asked, they might've been asking me for help, but they were also helping me. So we were doing a lot of back and forth. And then this, uh, this uh, scheme came up on Facebook of the mentoring and someone recommended me and a few people, even up towards Liverpool, who I've been working with, I suggested it'd be a good idea. And I thought, you know, it's 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 definitely something that I enjoy doing is helping. Um, I do it in my spare time. I do it as my job as well. In um, I'm, um, I work in the uh, the care industry, so I, I like to do things like that. So and it got me in touch with people. I say, I mean, you're all the way over in Liverpool in a totally different circuit and scene, and you were able to help me as well. So it's it's I like the idea that we're helping each other. And like I said, we are in an industry that it, it is a very slim amount of people who are generally dickheads. Yeah. Um, but yeah. if we create this ethos and work together on these things, I mean, it will make it better every time. So, uh, but yeah, it's been very supportive. I'm glad yeah. it has. And what I like to see in the industry is, I mean, I, I did a gig um, in Sheffield. I mean, it's hard. To, it's impossible to remember when about probably about two years ago um and there were a, a group of lads there that came and spoke to me afterwards and they were doing a comedy course um at the time and were just after some advice and i had a good chat with them afterwards and stuff and and now you know one of those guys has set up a regular night in sheffield and that's going really well and you know and, and it, i think it's nice to see kind of the the way things like that grow and i know some people who are perhaps a little you get one thing you get in comedy is you do occasionally get the the guys who've been on the scene for 10 15 years and maybe their progression or their career has stagnated and they're still doing the same stuff and they get a bit jaded and a bit bitter there aren't many of them but they're the ones who'll be like oh god no more we don't need more new comedians we don't need more new comedy nights and all this and 
I just think that that's bollocks. I think that the you know, new blood is always good, and and a new more stage time that's available. As long as you get an audience, more power to you. You know, I think that's Definitely. great. The comedy uh, spectrum, as it is, it is getting wider by the day, and I love the fact that so many different views and opinions are out there, and it we aren't like we were in the 70s and 80s and it was very much a standardised comedy scene. Mm. Now, it's, it's a beautiful colour range of what we're seeing out there now, you know, and um, hopefully it will have a knock-on effect with the industry and really shake it up because the one thing you see at the moment uh, very typically on TV is the young, good-looking comedians. And that. I, I want to see more diversity on that. I want to see more, you know, more relatable people. When I mean relatable people, people like you and me, you know, mm. You know, the, the bold and the beautiful, you know, I want to see I want to see comedians like that being more seen on TV, more heard on the radio because they're they're more relatable, they're more believable. And it, I think once we can reach that point, it'd be so much better in this uh, comedy scene. Uh, spectrum of ours. So. Yeah, I do think um, in terms of stuff, that is, you know, when you consider how many TV channels we've got available to us now, the real lack of regular stand-up based content obviously panel shows have you know panel shows have been around for a while now you know thinking yeah. back to you know the start i mean qi has been going for donkey's years and have i got news for you and things like that i think have i got news for you has been going for coming up 30 years or something like that um but right you know that there isn't an, a regular outlet or a, a persistent outlet for stand-up and i don't know whether that's because they haven't found they still haven't quite cracked how to to show it obviously you get regular specials from the big guys on your netflix and whatever but yeah I, I remember when i was well before i even thought about doing comedy used to get in on a friday night from the pub and you know on channel four or something like that or bbc two there would be basically you know a lot almost live or a filmed night from a comedy club in that sort of smoky bar setting and yeah. I, I'm, I think that there should be it's a shame there isn't more of that um, I think that you know, if you had a, a Comedy Central or whatever station it is now that, that offers stuff like that, I know Sky have got a comedy channel now. Why there isn't a regular outlet, and why that doesn't give an avenue to people who aren't established? It's great to see the familiar names, and obviously people want to watch the familiar names. But your comedy aficionados would quite happily set the, the DVR for a, a midnight show that showcased up-and-coming talent they've never heard of, I'm sure of it. Um, and it would be low budget. It doesn't have to cost the earth. So I do hope that will change. Um, yeah, I know Harry Hill did I'm... something last year, didn't he? And, you know, I think oh, yeah. you, you saw a few new people. But it would just be great to 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 see a show that, that I'm not saying put open mic level acts on, but, you know, acts that are breaking through into club work or paid work and that kind of level yeah. for the sake of 10 minutes on the telly. You know, you could discover Definitely. the next star, couldn't you? So um, <clears throat> maybe I'll put it to some friends I know who work in TV. <laughs> anyway. Um, I, I mean, I, I know on the, the circuit, there is, there is some amazing talent yeah. out on the circuit that will never get to be on the TV or on the big yeah. stage. And it, it's annoyance me every day when I, I'm at a gig and this person or people have gone on stage and just blown the roof off. And it's because they don't fit into that template of TV yeah. that they're not young, attractive. They haven't got the Instagram followers and all this. Yeah. And it, it's a shame. It really is because we are missing out every time. Yeah. Anyway, hey, listen, my, my, my ambition level um, doesn't, you know, obviously no one's going to turn it down, but my, my 
plan such as it is isn't to I'm not naive think I'm ever going to end up being a stand-up who's regularly featured on the telly but it would be nice to occasionally think that you might be good enough to have a you know a, a chance at five minutes of your stuff getting out there or whatever so I think that's a you know it's something that the whole industry needs to look at I think and perhaps perhaps a side effect of the fact that comedy's effectively moved on to screens albeit over the internet for the last year might be that there is a scope for something like that on the telly yeah, in the future but anyway we digress a bit um tell me about your mental health Darren so uh, you know you've you've sort of alluded to having quite a lengthy history um when did you first sort of become aware that you had any issues with your health well for a very long time I've um since I, I've had a number of issues when I was a young child with depression and that, mm. brought on by uh, a number of family issues that really um, kind of stole my childhood away and left me in a digression that I really struggled with, I struggled with on a daily basis. And in later life, the depression would reach a point that I was... The, the term I'd say is I was having to wear this mask every day. And even in the most crowded, crowded room, I, I was alone. Mm. In the busiest mm. of places, I was alone and I couldn't talk to anyone. I didn't know there was any outlets uh, to talk to people about this. And I didn't want people to see me like this. I felt that if people were to see me and know the truth, they would think I was weak. They would think I was damaged. They wouldn't want to know me. I'd be discarded. And it's, it's, it, it's, I struggled with this mask for a long time. And when I got into my teenage years, um, I mean, don't get me wrong, I was confident and I was very outgoing to a point, but I was still struggling on a daily basis just to leave the front door. Um, in later teen years, my paranoia would set in and I might typically with depression or paranoia is a side effect that you just can't get away from where simple conversation would be, you know, especially things like people text you mm. and you text them back, but they wouldn't text back straight away. And all of a sudden your worst nightmares are coming to life that your, yeah. your paranoia yeah. takes over your body. And it was, it was constant. It was, it was a constant beating at the door trying to scare me. And I, I was really struggling. Now I, I went to doctors finally. And the one thing the doctors always wanted me to do was to uh, go see a psychiatrist. And I had a couple of psychiatrists in my early years. And the one thing you don't want to talk about when you're, when you're that age is the one thing obviously they want to talk about. And I'd gone through a lot of my uh, childhood shutting these mental doors in my head trying to keep certain memories out. Now, when I uh, would go to the psychiatrist, all this emotion would come flooding out of me, all this fear, all this regret, all this, this the tears and emotion, that every time I would leave a psychiatrist, I, I genuinely felt suicidal. I genuinely just didn't want to deal with that again. Just to let that person peek through those doors, just for those brief moments, it felt like it destroyed me inside. And the worst thing was, I couldn't, I couldn't talk to people about it because I didn't want people to see me like this. And that's the worst, worst thing of when you have friends, when you have family, you know, 
who care and love for you and you can't be yourself. It is, it is so scary to deal with on a daily basis. Yeah. And then yeah. I reached a point in my early 20s that I was being able to control it to a point. Uh, I uh, dealt with a, a doctor, a doctor who was the first doctor to actually turn around and said, things will get better. Now, I know it's just a simple phrase, but in all the doctors and psychiatrists I dealt with before, they never said that to me. They were always quick to give me medication, always quick to tell me the, the bad stuff and all this. Not one of them ever sat me, sat me down and said, it things will get better. Mm. And it's, mm. it's right, things will get better in time. And I turned a corner and I started some new meds that were working really well. I started being outgoing again. My confidence was coming back. I felt a big, big sigh of relief that took me, which was great. And then about uh, four years ago, I had um, what I thought was a heart attack, but it wasn't. It was a, a panic attack. I just left, um, I just left a gig that mm. went really well. And everything about it went well. I left the stage feeling that it was, it, I gave everything I could give. The audience were really appreciative. Everyone was patting me on my back. And as I got to the car, it felt like I'd been around over. It felt like the world was crashing down around me, pushing me down on my chest. I was sweating. I was trying to grab at the door handles. I was trying to grab for my phone and, it, it scared me. It, it, I genuinely thought that was me dying right there and there. This would happen two or three more times over the next couple of weeks. And to the point that eventually I had to go see the doctor. I was genuinely worried. So I'm a big guy. I, I carry a lot of weight and um, I don't eat the health. I'm not the healthiest of eaters. And it was genuinely, I thought these were pre-stages of death for me this is me about to have the big heart attack that was going to kill me mm. and the doctor mm. told me straight that you know your anxieties your panic attacks your depression it, it, this is a lot for any one person to deal with yeah. but when you don't yeah. deal with it and you keep sweeping under the rug like i was doing to a point it's going to come out eventually and this way it's it just I say it hit me like I've been ran over. It was it was so scary. It's uh, and I'm on new meds now, which um, which are helping. They're helping with my sleep, which is another byproduct of you know when you're depressed, all you want to do is sleep. Yet you can't sleep because everything is rushing through your mind constantly. Your paranoia takes over as soon as that light switch goes off at night. Your eyes don't close. They just stare into the darkness, trying to about all the things you should have done that day or, or what's coming up next week or I should have said this why isn't that person phoned me and I'm I'm at a point now where I I'm starting to let people see behind the mask mm. I, I'm I've reached a point where I can talk to people my own family know the truth now which and they've been massively supportive um you know I've had partners and ex-partners get reach out and finally uh, understand why the way I've been all these years. You know, I'm with um, my girlfriend now. Of, uh, I've been only with for a few years. She has been 
uh, a rock in all of this. It's a lot for a person to take in. Yes. And have that level of support's been great. But I still wear I still wear the mask quite regularly, you know. And the only time I feel like I'm me is when I was on that stage mm. when people could see the real me. Yeah. They weren't yeah. asking anything of me. They weren't judging me to an extent. I was just up there saying a few silly things, a story here or two, and people would laugh and mm. it made me feel good that I had that outlet. Um, but like I said, I still, I still deal with it on a daily basis. Um, and I will do going forth. You know, I know it's not easy. It's not like flipping a switch. No, no. What's interesting though is, is, um, you know, I mentioned that I feel we're quite sort of similar in terms of our comedy personas and stuff like that, but actually the, almost everything you've said there is something I can relate to and, and has, has been part of my experience, um, even down to the panic attack. Uh, although I only had one full-on panic attack, it was it was terrifying. I was actually driving at the time. Um, and yeah. it, was, it was fucking terrifying, it really was. I thought I was dying and then I thought I was going to crash the car. Um, but um, <clears throat> I think the thing that probably resonates most is the, the two things that you said about wearing a mask. Um, yes, absolutely. We, you know, it's not exclusively a male thing, and this isn't a podcast exclusively about male mental health. But I think men, particularly, and certainly for me, um, with your general personality, if you can be quite gregarious and outgoing a lot of the time, people then struggle to understand when you're not. Um, so, in a period, I've I've struggled in the past where if I'm feeling in a low mood. Um, and I let that show in any way, people then around me will say, oh, you're not yourself today. What's wrong with you? Or, you know, you're really quiet or what's wrong? And, and then so you feel obliged to put that mask on. I don't think that mask is something you consciously choose to put on at first. I think it's something you're almost coerced to putting on by people's reaction to you when you're not. Um, and, and that then becomes a quite a vicious circle, I think. Um, and, and that leads into... I mean, I don't know if you've ever had anyone say this to you, but when you get someone saying, oh, you're the last person I thought would be depressed or what have you got to be depressed about? Those two things yeah. certainly been said to me and, and they're, they're like a real kick in the balls um, because for me, it sort of, it almost suggests that there's something extra wrong with you other than you're already dealing with a world of shit. Um, so I think that was the first thing that really resonated. And then the other thing that really resonated is when you talk about your partner, um, the the impact of um, our our problems on our partners can so often go kind of un, unaccounted for, I suppose. And, and it's really, you know, I, I know at times me and my wife have had conversations where, you know, she'll have said, you know, I spend so often, so much of my time um tiptoeing around your mental health that I don't pay any attention to my own and and then you feel well that's a really valid thing to say but then that also feels like you go fuck oh god I'm making her worse and and then you get a guilt thing and then that can if you're in the wrong place that can add to your low mood and so it's, it's a really complex um kind of day-to-day -day environment almost I think and, and it's really tricky um to know when you're in a safe zone, I suppose, because you can feel like you are, and then 
one thing can knock you for six. And, and uh, you know, I remember when I had my really big break, sort of breakdown, if you like, I think my daughter was three going on four. And my son was 11 months and, and I, I left home and I said to my daughter, bear in mind, she wasn't even four years old. If I don't leave, I think my head's going to explode. And I look back now and I think, what the fuck was I doing saying that to basically a preschool kid? Why would yeah. I say something like that? But at the time, that felt like a perfectly rational thing to say to try and explain how I felt. Um, so I'm slightly waffling now, but I think that that impact you have on other people is massive. Um, I, um, I look after, in my day-to-day job, mm. I'm a carer, and I look after kids with autism and learn the and challenge behaviour. And I find that um, I, I love what I do. I really do. And I'm good at what I do because I can, some, like I said, when I go to work, the kids aren't wanting to see uh, me like I am now. Yeah. You know, they don't want to see yeah. the depression. They don't want to see, they haven't chose to have their lives this way. Yeah. So when I yeah. come into this environment, I have to put this mask on. And sometimes yeah. that helps, you yeah. know. And I'm out doing activities that are quite mundane to me, but to them, it's, you know, before COVID, it was like taking them swimming was the best thing they could do. And it was their whole world right there. They mm. enjoy it. It's the first time they felt this, this normality that they deserved. And they, but for me, it was, you know, quite a mundane thing. But to wear the mask, so it helped me get through day to day. It has helped because I, I, I wouldn't wish it upon anyone really. Mm. And what you were saying about it can hit you any time, you, you know, you're right. I mean, there have been times I've, I've had panic attacks where everything, I've had a day where something's gone, everything's gone right. I've had a good gig, say. I've, I've, you know, I've gone shopping, I've bought myself a few things, I've had a lovely meal, I've had a good day with a girlfriend. And it just hits you. You, you don't plan for it, you don't mm-hmm. see it coming. <laughs> And you think you are broken inside. You think, why? Why is this happening to me? And why is this not happening to anyone else? Why? Mm. It, it's such a strange feeling. And as it's men, bizarre. as men, we're not allowed to show emotion and all this. And I hate. I actually hate this with a passion. That you know, as a kid growing up, you weren't allowed to cry. You know, you, if you've seen crying, you're you're, you're wuss. You you know, and it was. I hate that part of my childhood that that was allowed because I generally think if we were more acceptable of the tears that we, we shut, you know, when we cry, you know, it's an emotion, you know, like laughing, you know, it's, it's an emotion that people need to see and understand. And I, I generally wish if I could go back in time and change that I would, because nowadays, you know, it is starting to come more accepted. You start to see more men crying and showing their emotion. Mm. But we're only, at the, we're only at the start of it now. You know, why yeah. are we so far behind on this? Yeah, I agree. I think my kids have, I don't think my son's ever seen me cry. Um, my, my daughter, just last week or the week before, probably for the first time, and it was over some shitty TV show which just got me in the fields and I was like, Oh my God, you know, yeah. um, and, but that happens more and more now. I'm in my mid mid forties and it's like, Oh, you know, crying all the time. But, um, I do, I do, I have tried really hard, particularly with my son, not to, I mean, he's 11 now, not to sort of, I, I try not to say man up. I try not to say, 
suck it up, you know, what are you crying about that for if he gets tearful? Sometimes I do if I think his his tears are over the top or whatever, but um, you know, you, you try and I'm trying to raise emotionally intelligent kids and it, it's working. They're doing really well. They're, you know, they're really smart kids in terms of, you know, policing people's, their own feelings and people's feelings mm. and what should or shouldn't be, you know, and sort of ethics and stuff like that. I think they've both got a really strong sense yeah. of compassion and fairness and stuff, which is great. My, my family environment growing up was definitely, you know, do you want something to cry for? <laughs> you know, yeah. if you carry on kind of thing, if, if I got a bollocking from my dad, and I'd get tearful. It'd be like, you be careful, or I'll actually give you something that, that's really worth well, tears. That's it, you know? yeah. And that's so counterintuitive. It's so it's prehistoric, really, isn't it? Um, so, um, do you wear the mask on stage, or do you not need to? What I found is that <laughs> I, when I first wanted to go into comedy, I thought I'm going to create this persona about myself, be a completely alter ego of myself, mm. and go off to that stage and be someone I'm not. And it didn't work. It wasn't believable. I went on that stage, did material that I didn't really believe in, didn't really like, and made myself out to be a complete stranger to my, even to myself. And it didn't work. So the next time I went on stage, I, I went and I, I was me. I did the jokes and the stories that meant something to me. Yeah. That, that, that actually happened to me. So there was belief there. The mask came off, it slipped off, and people were able to see both my vulnerable side and my funny side can be the same thing. Mm. And it worked. I don't know what mix it was, whether it be the being vulnerable bit or being, you know, letting people to know some of the stupidity of my life and the stories I say, but it worked. Mm. And I felt mm. comfortable in that. It was weird. Mm. I was really nervous thinking that, this ain't gonna work. Uh, but when I went onto that stage and I started, it flew, it flowed from me a lot easier. And it came across that people were listening and they could actually understand. And a lot of the stories and jokes that I do, you know, they're you know, people reminisce about the same things that have happened to them. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. belief in that. So um they're always yeah, I'd say the mask is definitely not on that stage. Yeah. yeah, those moments when you get that that recognition of a specific event or a story that you're telling, and people are saying that happens to me, or oh, I've done that, or you see that recognition that they're the little bits of kind of gold dust for me that, that give me because I think that if you can, my belief about what I like about comedy is that relatability. I, mean, I find a lot of comedians very funny who I don't relate to, but the ones that are really tap into some sort of thought process that you've had and yeah. and twist it to make it that, that dial up the funny they're the ones i really like so i like it when i feel like i've done that for someone where yeah something that there maybe has happened i mean it, quite often with me it ends up being a sexual thing but you know where something's happened and yeah. then you see that that nudge in the front row of the couple saying oh yeah that happened to you love or that's exactly yes. what you do i love that i absolutely love that i think they are moments that that you, you know, as a comedian, just give me a lift and make me feel bigger, better, bolder, whatever. Um, so, has in terms of because a lot of what you've talked about, the, the sort of the, the timelines almost kind of converge between starting comedy and like you, when your panic attacks came to a head and stuff like that. Would you say comedy has has been kind of overwhelmingly positive for your mental health, or 
50-50 or bad or where, where would you put it you know if you were to sort of say what impact comedy's had on your mental health what would it be i'd definitely say it's been a positive it's been an outlet for a person who was a once like i said i described myself as being alone in a busy room i can say now that i have a voice in that room now that people listen to mm. and doing comedy as it's, everyone always goes, I, I don't know how you can go on stage and do that. I'd be too embarrassed. And I, I don't think about it. I don't think about the embarrassment. I, I get nervous. I mean, I don't know any comedian who doesn't get nervous going to that stage. But once you're on there, it's a different feeling altogether. And when jokes are running into other jokes and laughs are running into other laughs, everything starts connecting. It's, you say, it washes over you and it makes you makes you feel whole it makes you feel mm-hmm. like there is a purpose to this you know you're not alone in all this you know and it's it's made me feel a word that i don't use that often you know when i was younger it was it's made me happier knowing that i can make other people laugh you know make my my dash stories uh what make people relate to and laugh to so i definitely think it's been a definitely big positive going forward and I really hope with comedy returning that it continues, you know. Um, I've got a lot of hope, you know, I've got a lot of hope in what we can do as comedians and what we we hope we're going to do in the, in the six months, year, two years, whatever. Hmm. But as long as I'm going out on stage, I'm going to keep it positive, keep it me and try and try and show people the real me as, as much as possible, you know, and... You know, and it's worked up to now. It's going to work going forward. With the support I have from friends, family, comedians, and all that, it's going to be a good thing. Yeah, that's a really good, uh, really good outlook. So, um, final question. Um, I think you probably know which question is coming because it's the one I ask at the end of every episode. But um, if I could wave a magic wand and uh, take away all of your historical issues with your mental health and any going forward, so you even kill from from birth to death, even keel mental health-wise, but the the price of that is that you never do comedy again. Would you take that deal? Um, it's a tough one because my issues stem from a, a real bad childhood that I felt was stolen from me. So to have that given to me and another chance to be a child again, to I, I would, I, I probably would say give it all up because my my mental health reached a point that I didn't want to live anymore. Mm. And I've realized now doing comedy, there is so much more to live for. I've got family around me. I've got children and there is a lot more to give. I, I wouldn't want to give up comedy, but if it meant I could go back and have what was taken from me, I mm. think I would. Yes. So you're out of 24 episodes. You're only the second who'd take the deal. Um, yeah, the bad news for you, but the good news for comedy is I don't have the power to make that happen. Um, so, um, but I, I understand what you're saying. I understand why. So, um, Darren, it's been great speaking to you. And, it's been great uh, talking to you. Yeah, let's get together when we can. <laughs> stay positive, stay strong. I'm going to see you on stage really soon, and I, I can't wait. And you, buddy, take care.
There you have it then. Um, that was episode 24 and Big D. Thanks, Big D. Um, really enjoyed speaking with Darren. He's a good guy. And uh, I think it was, a, it was a really nice exploration, I suppose, of similar issues to those that I've had. Um, and, and just it's always reassuring to hear that people have gone through similar things and, and had similar experiences because when your mind plays tricks on you and sometimes when your own thoughts turn against you, it's really easy to assume you're some kind of freak. Um, so at least there's two of us. Anyway, um, coming up next week is a first for um, Sparks of Madness. We have a two-parter. Um, I, I've just finished recording. I spoke with uh, Alex Leem, who is uh, a comic who's been going for 10 years, um, based in uh, the East Midlands in Derbyshire, has previously been based down in Bournemouth um, and has had some really profound issues that have definitely affected his ability to be active on the circuit at various points. Um, most recently in the last month or so, um, he's been running some excellent online shows and had to take a step back from presenting those for the last month while he was having to deal with um, you know, some of his own issues there. So we talk at length, actually. So I decided after we spoke to to chop it into two parts because I think it's, it's a relatively weighty one and, and at times can be quite in-depth. Um, so I just wanted to, to chunk that down into uh, perhaps more digestible-sized um episodes if you like and, and try and keep the episode length similar to what we've done before so there will be two parts of that coming out um and they'll be coming out one week after the other which also means that i don't have to rush around trying to find another guest for another week um which is great for me um and on that score if you have any suggestions for future guests do drop me a line as i said at the introduction be always really good to hear what you've got to say take care cheers bye Sparks of Madness is hosted by Graham Rayner and is a Gag and Bone Man comedy production.